Have you realized yet that your purpose in life is constantly evolving? The thing is, it can only evolve, grow, and expand to the extent you're willing to do the work to heal. That's why I've created a transformative half-day virtual event designed for purpose chasers who want to integrate their authentic selves in every aspect of their life. Together, we're going to co-create conversations around reflecting on current patterns, amplifying your genuine desires, prioritizing fulfillment over the facade of what you should do, and we'll talk about achieving actual tangible results. I believe our work together will have a profound impact on your life as we break you out of autopilot, scale your potential, and set you up to attract everything you say you desire. Plus, this space will be an enjoyable and supportive environment for new connections with like-hearted purpose chasers from all over the world. Together, we will laugh, dance, and maybe cry, but we'll be doing the work together. If this speaks to your soul and you want to detox and release what's no longer serving you so you can live fully in the pillars of redefining wealth, tickets are currently complimentary for this half day of coaching, training, and co-creating a new blueprint for your heart's desires directly with me. So grab your ticket today at patricewashington.com slash soul detox. That's patricewashington.com slash soul detox. Imagine what the world would look like if black men showed up home. Families would look like. Imagine what our businesses would look like. Imagine what our communities would look like. Imagine what the world would look like if black men showed up home. You're listening to the Redefining Wealth podcast with Patrice Washington. In today's episode, I sit down with the journalist, producer, and content curator, Jeff Johnson. He says that when men are allowed to take off the mask, then they have an opportunity to thrive. Hey there, this is Patrice Washington from patricewashington.com, where we chase purpose, not money. Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Wealth. If you are brand new here, this is what you need to know. This is the unconventional personal finance show because we don't just talk about money in the traditional sense. This show and our community understands that wealth is so much more than money and material possessions. We believe wholeheartedly in the 12th century definition of wealth, which was the condition of well-being. And so each and every week we discuss topics that get to the heart of our well-being in so many areas. So if you want to learn more, I suggest you go to patricewashington.com forward slash start here so that you can get familiar with our six pillars of wealth. That's patricewashington.com forward slash start here. Today's episode is a special one to me. I'm doing this episode in honor of Father's Day. And what came up for me in particular was that I wanted to do something to really support the Black men in my life. I feel that there has just been so much going on that I wanted to do something to encourage so many great Black men out here. And so, yes, this podcast is like 82% women down or downloaded by women, it says insights 82%. But for the 18%, whether you're black, white, yellow, purple, or gray, and whether you're male or female, and whether you think this applies to you or not, this conversation is so rich. I want to encourage you to listen. It is so rich and it helped open me up to so many things 
that even as a Black woman, I've just never thought about. And it's given me so much perspective and how to even support my husband and my brothers and my father and men in my life that I truly love. And so I don't care who you are, what color you are, where you come from. You will learn so much from Jeff. And he says early on in the episode, I put a lot of responsibility on him, but you will hear in this episode, I barely talk. (laughs) I think that when you really don't know what to say, but you want to be helpful, that that means it's just time to listen. And what I'm seeing out in social media is people are so quick to have a reaction and have a stance. And so... They're making fools of themselves, quite honestly, because they're not taking time to listen. And talking to Jeff was my opportunity to listen. And I did just that. And I hope that you will, too. So without further ado, let me give you Jeff's official bio. Jeff Johnson is a social architect and storyteller committed to Black men. Jeff has been on a journey to liberate himself from the trauma and character flaws that he believes contributed to periods of his own arrested development. He's had a diverse career as a journalist, producer, and TV host, as well as successfully running his own strategic communications firm. But his passion is developing content and ecosystems that elevate the complexity of men and provide spaces committed to men becoming their best selves. From creating, producing, and hosting BET's Man Cave to launching the Men Thrive community, he is intentionally curating experiences for the empowerment of Black men. Without further ado... Here's our good friend, Jeff Johnson. Welcome to the Redefining Wealth podcast, Jeff. Hey, sis, what's up? (laughs) I'm so excited that you're here. I am like in this place where I am excited and angry because you've been doing this forever and I've never been invited. I feel abused and ignored and like a second class citizen. But but I understand, you know, when you you've been on Steve Harvey's show and traveling the world and you got all these people, you know, this poor broke dude from Baltimore who talks to your husband every now and again is not the primary um, interview target. So I'm, I'm excited now that that in the midst of the pandemic when you can't get with everybody you want to interview that you were caught and give me time to come on and fellowship with you. So thank you. Bless you. (laughs) This is why, (laughs) this is why you can't invite people, you know, in real life. (laughs) Cause this, this is how they behave. (laughs) And if we didn't, it wouldn't be authentic. Like what's the point? I know. Seriously. I am. So incredibly thankful for the opportunity, not because you're inviting me on, but because being on is a representation of this manifestation of this growth that that I've been able to, at a distance, watch you go through. And it's incredible. I am so proud to know you and know your family. But more importantly, like you and I sat in training session together on a time before we knew exactly what we were doing or how we were doing this new iteration of who we are. And so to, to watch what you've done since then, which was what, four years ago? No, it was like six years ago. How? 
to to watch how you've built this thing just authentically and been yourself, kudos to you. Ah, thank you so much. I feel the same way, obviously. I feel the same way. And you referenced Gerald, who the audience now knows well, my husband. And I, I feel just so blessed that you are one of the people that he calls friend. One of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation I shared this a little bit before we started recording is that, you know, as a as a black woman married to a black man and for such a time as this, as much as I do want to empathize, I know that I I can't even scratch the surface of what I think he may be experiencing when we look at just all the changes and the challenges that 2020 has brought men families in general, but Black men in particular, I just wanted to invite someone who I knew could speak into the heart and the lives of men as we head into Father's Day, too, also fathers, right? Um, and, And speak to the heart of what they may be experiencing and give them hope. Yes, my podcast is 80% women, but the 20% men, they need you. They needed they needed a voice. They needed a strong voice. And for the women, the 80 percent who love and support men, whether they be fathers, spouses, significant others, sons, nephews, uncles. I want them to have something that they can forward or play out loud in the kitchen, even for Mm -hmm. folks who don't want to listen to the podcast, put it on loud and and hear something, hear a conversation that actually encourages them and supports them and says, Hey, I see you and you're not by yourself. That's a lot of responsibility for me right now. Yeah, but you're capable. You're more than capable. Uh, What I realized, I mean, um, your husband in particular was part of a small team of people that had it not been for them, man cave would have never been on TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And so I'm, I'm forever indebted to Gerald for being part of that team that made Man Cave a reality. But that was that was really what that was about, right? Man Cave was not about, one, we were critical about, we are not trying to tell women how to be women at all. Like not one episode ever did you see us as men trying to tell women what to do. Because I, I just refused to be part of that ridiculous pattern of content that was like, like we don't even we need figured out how to be men good yet. <laughs> but two, it was we weren't trying to tell men what to do either. We were attempting to be a reflection of the best and the worst and the most brilliant and insane and the most whole and the most damaged men at the same time. Because in this moment, it's shown us that we need to elevate the the image of the complexity of men, that we are not what we sometimes show you all we are. We are not what sometimes we think we are. We are so much more than that. And so even in this conversation, if, if I can just reflect my own truth and share the truth that that I have gotten from the other men that, that are a part of the work that I do, and then be super honest about the stuff I don't know, then it becomes a more authentic conversation because you can be a financial expert that that is somebody who, through a series of study and practical application, has understood how markets work, how money works, the various sciences behind how you use that money, 
the mechanisms that money works within, you can become an expert in that in study. You can't be no expert on men because that means in some way, shape or form, you know, all of them. And so I just attempt to be a representative that is interested in the elevation of brothers, not somebody who proclaims to be an expert. So I want to I want to set the stage for that, because in this in this social media age of self-proclaimed experts, uh, Mm -hmm. I want it to be clear that I serve men. I don't proclaim to be the expert of. And so my our conversation is rooted in that that I serve men and that in that my job is also how do I assist sisters in better understanding the men that they love, not trying to position women in any way, shape or form either into who they need to be for our benefit. That's a podcast. (laughs) Right there. That is, that's, that's a whole episode right there. So let's talk about men thrive because we, we, I shared your bio, so we know the background in politics and we know journalism and we know you have this vast background. How did you get to this idea of launching Men Thrive? So I was making content. I wanted to make content. I realized how pervasively powerful content can be. I reached out to somebody to say, listen, I'm trying to do content that elevates the complexity of men. And so I want to bring on some psychologist that can consult with me so that I'm not unintentionally triggering, so that I'm not unintentionally, even whether it's through script or whether it's through archetype, demonizing men or compounding trauma. And in that, I met this brother named Kevin from Henry Health, an organization that was attempting to create culturally intentional therapy specifically for Black men. And I'm like, yo, we need to partner. And they were incredibly efficient on the business side and with clinical care, but not so much experts in culture and content. And so it was a marriage of of equals where Men Thrive became the first community powered by Henry Health. And so I'm a curator in that I'm developing, uh, we have a podcast that's specifically about conversations with men. And then we're creating behavioral health, self-mastery content. So even our meditations, I have a producer. So all of the music for our meditations is original music because I want to speak to the chakra and I want to speak to the chakra. I want to use sonics that specifically speak to black men. Nobody in the behavioral health space is intentional about developing something for us. And even if you talk to clinicians, most are trained to treat one trauma. Black people, poor people, but specifically black people are dealing with multiple compounded traumas. And can we dig into that, Jeff? Because I was really when I went to the website and I saw meditation, the first thing I thought was probably what many people think. Do black men meditate? Do you like, is this an image that we even see anywhere? We I've never seen that. And I'm like, how did he get to this point? And how receptive have you seen men become to this idea of meditation? Incredibly and terribly at the same time. So let's, let's not pretend. Listen, there are black men who meditate. And so whether it is because they have spent time in other countries where meditation has a different narrative, 
or whether it's because they have come up in a place where they've been more privileged than others and been exposed to it in a way that, shit, let me try this. Or maybe they've been in a place where I don't know what to do. And so I'm willing to try anything one time to see if it helps. But the thing about it is there is there is a fundamental challenge in it. That is, most of the behavioral health space has postured this content through the lens of coping. And so brothers don't want to cope. And so it makes them feel weak. And so I've I've had to be incredibly intentional about think about it this way, whether you're a martial artist or whether you are a soldier think about the greatest warriors in the history of the world throughout different places in the world culturally. And you will almost always see some form of going inward, whether it's prayer, whether it's breathing, whether it's meditation before going into battle, because not, not only psychologically, but physically the breath taking in and exhaling is bringing oxygen into the body. That oxygen is filling the blood cells with oxygen, giving me a greater level of energy and putting the body in a greater level of readiness to be able to do what it is that I've been called to do. And so meditation is not about pacifying me to get beat down. It is about preparing me to go into a state of psychological, emotional, and spiritual warfare driven by a level of unification with my creator and not anger that disconnects me or stress that keeps me from the greatest sense of my purpose. That is so good. It's exciting because part of me is, is being driven by my own research A part of it is connecting with real hardcore clinicians that aren't afraid of saying their job is to uh, provide therapy to black folks. And then part of it is just a willingness to fail. I'm telling my producer, I want you to do something so insane that when we put it out there, bro's going to be like, dude, what was you doing? Like, I didn't feel this at all. This was distracting. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to know how we get to that sweet spot. Yeah. to to brothers in a way that they haven't been spoken to before, but it's exciting. It is. So tell me what else kind of speaks to that, those different levels of trauma that you mentioned earlier though. So yes, there's the meditation and yes, we understand there's like, oh my gosh, there's so many layers, as you said, to the trauma that we experience as black people, but then also as black men, what other ways are you using to reach men? First, Black men suffer from the highest levels of toxic stress, anxiety, depression. Black men in America have the lowest life expectancy of any other demographic in the United States. We have to start there. We also are suffering from a cultural norm that says we are not supposed to feel. And so black men have predominantly been raised to say, I have to be a strong, stoic figure of unemotionalness in order to be strong. So I can't feel pain. I can't feel sorrow. I can't feel hurt because that's not me manning up. I've had so many brothers talk to me recently about feeling like they had their childhood robbed of them. Because as early as three years old and four years old, we like, hey, little man, come here, little man. Don't cry, little man. Don't do this, little man. Don't feel, little man. 
And so what's insane is that in a world that has literally spent, and you tell me if I'm going too deep, says we got two things working against us. In this day and time where people are trying to now admit that white supremacy exists, and in this day and time where people, both black, white, and other, are trying to navigate the historical accuracy of what that means through the lens of all the emotional reality that white supremacy has impacted, we don't always tell the truth or we don't always get to the root of it. And so let's be clear. The transatlantic slave trade was the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world, which means that almost every advanced country or developed country in the world was benefiting from the transatlantic slave trade. Well, what that means is that most of the world was involved in trading black bodies for money. It was an economy. It was an economic decision. It wasn't by and large emotional. It was economic. And so the problem with that is you have systems people that understand the power of an economy that have to ensure that human people buy into that system for as long as possible. Why am I bringing this up? Because systems people who understood the economy of this had to create an academic and social narrative that prevented human people from seeing black people as human and saying, we can't continue this economic system. So at some point, human people are like, wait a minute, my nanny that's taking care of my baby is a human woman. And as a result, how can I continue to enslave her? Well, when you create academic study that says these aren't really full humans, mm-hmm. these, are, these are subhumans that can't think the same. They can't love. They can't create bonds the same way that we do. And then you have a social narrative. The first movie in the history of America was Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was a commercial for the Klan that ultimately said white people have to protect themselves against the sexual ravagings of black men whose only real desire to go through the hillsides and rape and pillage white women. So wait a minute. This whole narrative of inhumanity that was necessary to drive slavery was then perpetuated throughout the history of this country where black men don't feel, black men don't think, So we love black men who are sports figures because they give us their bodies. That's why you should shut up and dribble. Because why do we need to hear what you have to say? Because you are a body that were sent here to entertain me. We have then embraced it because we had to survive. Right. In the words of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we wear the mask. We wear the mask because we can't show ourselves as human because you can't handle our humanity. Our humanity scares you. Our humanity, unfortunately, there's so much brilliance in our humanity. When you have suppressed it, now that it shows up, you don't know how to embrace it. And so black men had to say, I can't feel. I can't express. I can't show these things. Here's what's crazy. And then compound that with black men saying, I can't even show real levels of joy. Because now I look goofy. I can't show real levels of excitement because I got to act like I've been here before. I can't show that I don't know something because I don't have the flexibility not to know. 
Because if I show up in this space, I got to know. Otherwise, I'm not going to be in this space again. So comprehensively, and and I hate to to be so long-winded on this point, but comprehensively, Black men have been in a place where they have been told that whether it's protecting themselves against white supremacy or whether it's about protecting themselves against the attack of other Black men, who now view me as an enemy because of white supremacy that I can't feel. So we have got to destroy that in a way that says in us feeling is our greatest humanity and in in turn our greatest power, whether it is with our sisters, whether it's with our other brothers, whether it's with our children, whether it's in the world, the moment that we can acknowledge our feeling without being controlled by it, when we can embrace our feeling and then attempt to go in to examine it in the most healthy ways and that we can use our feeling to be able to manifest our purpose, that is where our power is. And we don't have a narrative for that. And so part of what Men Thrive is about is how do we help brothers show up whole, operate in joy and live with power? Because in that, in that humanity, is our greatest strength and our greatest opportunity to show up whole. And imagine what the world would look like if black men showed up whole. Oh. Families would look like. Imagine what our businesses would look like. Imagine what our communities would look like. Imagine what the world would look like if black men showed up whole. That was so good. <laughs> that was so good. One thing it brought up for me, Jeff, was just this week, I looked at a short clip of IGTV from a pastor. I know he goes by PMJ out of like Alabama, I think. And the clip said, what if I'm not strong? What if I'm just numb? Mm. You know, as a black man, I feel like I have to be seen as this strong black man going to your point about the feelings. And he's like, I don't think I'm strong anymore. I think I've made myself numb Mm -hmm. so that I could just survive. The brilliant and prolific Dr. Tamer Bryan and I were on a call yesterday and we were talking to a company about how to navigate this space. And she said, I need to talk to all supervisors because she said, you may not know this term. No, just fix your face. And she was like, fix your face is a term that protected black folks, whether it was you with your parents or whether it was you in the world because you couldn't show how you felt. And so she said, I need you as supervisors to hear black people when they come to you and say, this is my regular face. This is my trauma face. And so people are misdiagnosing all the time our strength. Taraji and I were doing a conversation around mental health and she was like, the worst thing anybody can say to her is that she's strong. She said, because the moment you say black women are strong, you dehumanize them. Yes. Put them in a position where they have to be that. And you rob them of the moments when they need to be protected. And and so as we talk about this dynamic between us as men and women, you know, I got a lot of kids. Um, (laughs) And so we have to have we have to have um, restorative justice conversations in our house. Because there's times when we can't be in unintentional about who did what to who and how it affected the family. And we were having a conversation one night and two of my sons had checked out of the conversation. 
and my wife was talking and she was like, will y'all look at me when I'm talking to you? And they shifted and I didn't say anything. Like I'm just sitting there. And then my daughter was talking and these two little dudes was checked out. And I was like, yo, can y'all look at Madison when she's talking? And I immediately was like, baby, I'm sorry. Like, baby, I am sorry. Like in this moment, I recognize that I see you as so strong that you don't need me to do what I just did for Madison. Mm-hmm. And it's a question of if you need it or not. It's a question of I am making you superhuman. So whether you need it or not, my job as your partner is to not force you to have to be strong all the time. Mm-hmm. Times when I am being strong for you. Equally with Black men, we have been in a place where we have been told this is who we need to be. And so in many cases, we're numb to this notion of anything else. And so even when we're hurting, we won't tell you, we won't say it, we won't show it, which is why we're suffering from the highest levels of toxic stress and the highest level of depression and the highest level of increasing rates of suicide and the lowest life expectancy. My grandfather committed suicide when he was in his early 60s. He went blind from an increased case of glaucoma and he was a worker. My grandparents moved from Columbus, Georgia to Cleveland when the Ford plants opened, like so many others did in the, in the second great migration. And going blind, he couldn't work. Now, the, the family was still getting long-term disability and, and pension and all of this. So the family was taken care of. He did not feel like he was valuable. And there was no term called emotional intelligence at that time. Mm-hmm. Black man from Columbus, Georgia, who was born at the turn of the century, he didn't talk. And my grandmother didn't know how to have conversations with him about how he was feeling. His children didn't know how to have conversations with him about how he was feeling. And so he was in this place of isolation, surrounded by people, feeling useless, and took his own life. And, and I think about that on a regular basis, about how my father and my uncles have been revolutionary in their ability to communicate things that my grandfather didn't even think was possible. And so I have to be equally as revolutionary in not only how I show up emotionally, but how do I encourage other brothers to have the space to. And so that goes back to your original question, which the first thing we have to do is how do we have conversations different? That the barbershop is the highest evolution of black male conversation and nonsense. Um, it is an unbelievably important cultural place because it's a safe space for black men. But it is often the the it's the most honest place that we talk about everybody but us. So we'll go hard on him and her and them and that. And ain't nobody off limits at the barbershop. But how often you hear somebody coming to the barbershop like, hey, y'all, man, it's really rough with me and wifey this week. And and I ain't feeling good about it. Or, yo, old girl just ripped my heart out. And I don't even know how to pretend like I care. Or as much as I wanted this marriage to be over, I still feel like part of me got murdered. Or 
I don't know how to father these kids <laughs> in this moment because I don't watch Moana 35 times and now I don't know what the hell to do. You don't hear that at the barbershop. I've had conversations with so many brothers. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like we have had relationships with each other for five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years and they had one real conversation. Oh. Because at no point have I shared with you the stuff I'm embarrassed about. And so what, what I, the conversation I'm having with brothers, and listen, I'm one of those dudes. Reverend Jamal Bryan and I were talk, talking the other day, um, having a similar conversation. He was like, Jeff, I appreciate you so much because you've had those conversations with me where you've been like, all right, I ain't talking to Reverend Dr. Jamal Harrison Bryan. I'm talking to Jay and Negro, you lying to me. And I was really up. And I was like, yeah, Jay, but to be honest, we ain't had them conversations until we was 10 years in. Yeah. In our ninth year and eighth year and seventh year and sixth year and fifth year and fourth year of friendship. And I can I can point to areas where we made mistakes that were preventable if we had been accountable to each other in a as men and not celebratory of each other as boys. And so accountability with men is about how are we honest with each other about the things that we're most embarrassed about? And so brothers have to practice that with one person first. Who is the brother that you feel most comfortable with being naked in front of with the stuff that you don't want to talk to about anybody else? And what's the one thing that you will do to try to test it? And so when is that moment that you will ask that brother if you could borrow some money? When is that moment where you would tell that brother that you ain't doing good? When is that moment that you will talk about that thing that you did that you are ashamed of and then watch how he responds? And most of us are shocked at at the space where they acted like it wasn't nothing. Right. That's what often happens when you when you tell the truth, though, right? Like, I, I, you know, even as a woman, there were so many things losing my son, like just different things that I went through that I, I felt like in those moments, it was just me. And I have the strong friend label. Right. So been strong friend since I was a child, yeah. the person that could hold everybody else's stuff, but didn't always have people to hold my stuff. So to PMJ's point, I went from am I really strong or have I just numbed? myself to feelings in a lot of ways and just keep plowing through and going on. And then you finally have a conversation with someone. And the answer is yes to both. Yes, right. I'm really strong. And yes, I'm too numb. Yeah. And you finally have a conversation with someone and say, this is what I went through in my marriage. Like this is this is that thing that I was most embarrassed about or too concerned about protecting my image to talk about and then give someone the space to go, girl, me too. Yeah, mm-hmm. our that happened to us in 2012. Let me tell you, this is what, but it's not until someone says something. The little things. Like, so so we in this space, like, I got to tell somebody about the bankruptcy or I don't have enough money to pay my rent or my mortgage instead of, it's just a bad day. <laughs> because mm-hmm. don't practice having transparent conversations about the little things. One of my boys just the other day was like, we're trying to see our friends, man. This time is crazy. I need some energy and I need some couple energy. 
And so one of my boys was like, come over. And, and his wife is like the Gestapo around social distancing. So she's she's researching stuff. She's measuring chairs in the backyard to make sure they're the right distance away from each other. She was like, we couldn't smoke cigars because you know how far that cigar smoke travels and there's particles. And I'm like, oh, I'm just not coming over there, y'all. We just going to Zoom. But but they invited us over, Patrice, and we were scheduled to come over. And it was one of them nights. And my boy was like, hey, y'all still coming over? And my normal response would have been like, nah, some came up with kids or no, I just got pulled in with this client. And I was like, yo, Wes, it's one of them husband wife days. And she ain't happy with me right now. And I ain't happy with her right now. And I don't even know how to go to her and be like, hey, you know, we supposed to go over their house tonight. Truce. Like, I ain't even there. So what I'm going to tell you is, let's plan for later on in the week, because I know that both of us will probably come down within the next 24 hours and be in a good space. But tonight ain't that space. And it was incredibly liberating because he was then able to, one, fully understand where we were. And as my friend asked some pertinent questions to make sure it wasn't something more serious. And two, I was just able to be transparent about as dope as I think my marriage is and as great as this moment is for us, like this is what married couples go through. And so if we can't be transparent about the little things, it makes the, the big thing seem like Everest. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's part of that practicing piece, too. So start small. Yeah. Start with the simple everyday things. Yeah. It normalizes it. Mm-hmm. If I can be transparent with you about the small things, we got a track record of trust. So the big things hit. I'm not so anxious about, dang, can, can I call Patrice about this? Um, how is she going to respond? No, I've told you 15 small things and you never judge me. I told you... 12 medium things that were really a struggle and you always showed up. I I asked you something. And even when you didn't respond the way I wanted you to, you responded in a way of true friendship. And so now when this heavy thing comes, I actually need to talk to Patrice because I know it's the safest space that I have because not only has she, she, she just, you know, you know how you, some people you go into their house, and you know that they they just it's just a place that they go to versus you go to somebody's house and they don't feng shui that joint out like every wall is colored in a way that emits a certain emotion and they got plants in a certain place and the art. We do that with relationships. And some of y'all just got blank rooms where mm-hmm. all stand there to look at each other and talk about nothing that's meaningful. Some of you all have colored the wall with a color of understanding and a color of empathy and put this soft couch there to show that I want you to come in and sit here for a while and commune with me and plants that emote another level of oxygen. And you lit a fire to show that it's a cozy place to be able to sit. And, and we do those things. And you don't want to go to nobody's house and sit in a blank room on a folding chair. And so how do you emotionally create 
these feng shui environments that says to your friends and to your family that this is a safe space to commune, Mm -hmm. not a transactional place for banter. Oh, that's so good. This track record of trust. That is Mm -hmm. so good. I remember having a conversation with Gerald too. You guys have probably talked about it. We talked about though, him growing up being so transactional. Like I would say, hey, you don't have to do business with him. That's just your friend. Like you guys should just be friends. Gerald didn't even know what that meant. No, he didn't. Um, We had that conversation maybe seven or eight months ago. And I was just like, dude, stop. Like, Mm -hmm. Like, I need to introduce you to some people. And I'm like, when I introduce you to them, this ain't about the deal. You ain't got to figure out what the approach is to make them feel like this in order to do this. This is like, yo, you're a great dude. He's a great dude. Y'all both live in Atlanta. You both like cigars. Connect and smoke a cigar and have a conversation about the kids and talk about the weather and some football or whatever. And I said, the problem is, Almost everybody that knows you thinks that you about the deal. So you got bros that actually love you that don't know how to have a non-transactional conversation with you because they've never even seen you as open to it because you just move. You just move. You just move. You just making deals. You're making things happen. You you holding this up. You're doing this. You're setting the next thing up. You're making this happen. You're doing this over here. You're doing that over there. And you've never slowed down in this current iteration of your life long enough to just be Gerald. Not Mr. Washington, not senior of this, not leader of this, not creator of that, not executive producer of this. And the reality is you owe yourself that because you're a great guy. Yeah. And most people just know you as a great business person. And the reason why... The great business person is 25 feet tall and the great guy is three feet tall because you don't feed that dude. And I think that's the other piece. Right. How do we feed that? You know, I, I don't I don't believe in balance. I just I just don't know if it's possible. But I do believe that we have to always be intentional about what are the areas of us that we that we have to feed as men so that they don't die. And so much of our value has been rooted in our work that we have very seldom fed who we are as men. COVID has wrecked shop on a lot of brothers. Like one of my boys hit me and he was like, Jeff, man, we need to have a conversation. And I already, I already knew. And I said, all right, so do you want me to have a you my man pep rally talk or do you want the I'm your friend talk? And he was like, I want the I'm your friend talk. And I was like, okay, your problem is you ain't got nowhere to go in that $250,000 car that you bought to help define who you are. You can't wear none of them clothes nowhere that you just filled your whole closet with. And that jewelry is sitting in a box because why wear this Roly around the house and this, this Cartier around the house? And you spent the last four and a half years building your identity around stuff that you bought that you can't take nowhere now. And now you're in the house by yourself 
looking at yourself in the mirror and you don't know who the hell you are because you ain't fed that dude. So, what you want to talk about? That's it. And so, women who love Black men, it's an incredible moment to help remind them who they are for real. Yes. Not who they are on their resume and who they are in the spirit realm and not who they are at the office and who they are to this family and not just who they are to the world. And in that, we as men can begin to course correct based on some real intentional investment in those parts of who we are. And there's mental health in that because there's value in that part of our identity as husband, as father, as man, not just as breadwinner, as entrepreneur, as executive, as as grinder. Because anybody that loves black men will get them to understand the fallacy of the grind. The grind is not supposed to be a perpetual state. The very definition of it is two things rubbing together until one thing is ground down to no longer existing. So if you are a perpetual grinder, then you are embracing the fact that I'm going to kill myself doing this. Mm. If, If the grind is a temporary state that leads to me building, then ultimately as I'm building, I'm building me, not grinding myself down. And so part of Men Thrive is actually about that thrive. We believe that we are supposed to embrace the fullness of who we are in communities that lift us up, that we would be able to build to thrive, not reduce our humanity to isolate ourselves, to be in places that we grind to survive. And any of us that love Black men will begin to speak to what are we building? Mm-hmm. begin to ask black men, what are you building? And it doesn't have to be a multi-million dollar building it business. It's this family. Right. Some, some huge tech company. It can be these babies. It doesn't have to be some, um, you know, world renowned institution. It can be my legacy. And, and so as we're engaging men, We have to change our cultural conversation and norms that still acknowledge the fact that you, yeah, I want you to go get that bag. Yeah, I want you to build this, but not at the cost of you losing your whole self. That's redefining wealth. Like, that's why this conversation is so important. That is redefining wealth is teaching people that true wealth is so much more than money and material possessions. And what good is it? If you're not yourself, if you're killing yourself in the process, if you, you know, your wife don't like you on most days, <laughs> like we need to, you can, we can not like y'all some days, but not all the days. Like that speaks to something else going on or your children don't really know you, don't have respect for you, don't have a genuine relationship with you. What good is all the stuff? Mm-hmm. What good is the grind? If at no. the end of your life, you look back and you don't even know no. Who you really were and why no. you were here. When I think about my dad, I lost my dad seven years ago. And when I think about him, the single most profound memory 
is the feel of his beard against my face when he kissed me every night before he went to bed. It wasn't, it wasn't the business he built. It wasn't the cars he drove. It wasn't the house he lived in. It wasn't the life that he provided for me. It was the feel of his beard against my face when he would kiss me goodnight before he went to bed. And I'm talking about the two years he lived with my wife and I before he passed, let alone my earliest memory being him tickling me. And my dad wasn't perfect. And there were times that he was more into work than he was available. But what I remember is his touch. And I'm talking about me as a 47-year-old man. I remember my daddy's touch. And more than, and I appreciate all the other things. They're real. I'm not here. I'm not where I am right now without my father. But what I remember is his touch. What I remember is his voice and all the other stuff I'm thankful for. But that's the stuff, right? That's that's stuff. That's the stuff. That's the stuff. Uh, yeah. I knew you would come through, friend. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is so good. I knew you would come through. Before I let you go, I have to ask you a few redefining wealth, rapid wisdom questions, we call them. So tell us the first thing that comes to mind. How do you define success? Greatness. I hate the word success because I think success is driven by what the world says you have to do in order to be recognized and you can be great when nobody's watching. Mm Mm-hmm. How do I just operate in how do I how do I attempt to achieve mastery? So success for me is is the quest and the quest for mastery. I love it. How do you define wealth in three words or less? Thank you, daddy. Yeah, you're just going to drop that on us. You're not going to give us a little. (laughs) Because when your children say thank you in the truest sense of the word, For giving them what they needed, not what you told them they needed. Mm, That's beautiful. Okay. What's one book that has redefined how you see wealth? Oh, good question. Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? By Reginald F. Lewis. Reginald F. Lewis was the first person to negotiate a billion-dollar deal in corporate America. And he's a brother from Baltimore. Why should white guys? Beatrice Foods was the deal. First billion dollar deal in American corporate history uh, was negotiated by a black man from Baltimore named Reginald F. Lewis. Oh, wow. We have to link to that. I've never heard that story. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, you're going to fill in the blank. My name is, and for me, the truth about wealth is... My name is Jeff Johnson, and the truth about wealth is that it is a multi-generational journey. Mm -hmm. Love it. Worth Magazine in 2003 did a three-part series called The Family's 100-Year Financial Plan. And it talked about how some of the wealthiest families in America view money. And how they handle their personal wealth and talked about how their how cousins get together in teams. So this generation is actually competing against this generation to bring a return to the family with their personal 
wealth, with pieces of their personal wealth. And it just, it just reminded me that um, sometimes being broke makes you short-sighted about what the real power of money is and that wealth is a generational proposition. And when we view it generationally, we don't feel like it's all on us mm. to do it one time. It's a relay race. And so my job is how do I have my family collectively in a better place when I hand the baton over than when I got the baton? Mm-hmm. This is the ego. And I got to be the one that saves the family versus I got to be the one that propels the family and sets them up so that this next generation can further propel. Ooh. Rarely do I not have things to say on my <laughs> podcast. This is, this is very rare. Long winded. And these are really good questions. <laughs> that was the last one, but thank you so much. I, I have to listen back to this. You dropped so many gems and I just really want this episode to be a blessing to black men in particular and the women that love them and the people that support them and the people who are ready to be allies who don't understand some things. So hope they learn some things today. You delivered, friend. Thank I you, appreciate sir. you. Of course. Of course. I just love this conversation. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to listen again. (laughs) I'm going to have to listen again and again. And one of the things that just really hit me, even after I got off the interview with Jeff, was that idea of building up little trust, being able to tell people the little things so that you could trust them with the big things. And I know personally, as someone who has worn that kind of label or badge of honor as the strong one, that when I go through even small things, I don't share. I don't always express it. It's a constant thing. You've probably heard me talk about it in the past on the podcast. It's a constant thing because I think, well, that's too little and don't nobody have time to complain about, you know. Have you ever asked someone, well, how are you? And they go, um... Well, you wouldn't care anyway, or it's not worth talking about. But sometimes the small things are worth talking about, right? Because we don't have to just carry that. We don't have to just hold that by ourselves. And there's just so much. There's so much. But the bigger point of this whole episode was being an encouragement to men, and in particular, Black men. So please share this episode with the men in your life. And happy Father's Day. (laughs) Happy Father's Day to all that are listening. And a big shout out to Jeff. Menthrive.com is a phenomenal, phenomenal site. Um, he calls it a love letter to black men. It's a, it's a community that's curated to proclaim the generational toxic stress, depression, and anxiety standing in the way of black men living their best lives. And I want you to pull up menthrive.com and share it. There's a podcast. There's a blog. There's the meditations that Jeff talked about. Please share it because you don't know, right? We don't really know what's going on in the back of a man's mind when he's pretending to be strong. We have no idea, right? And sometimes we don't know until it's too late, unfortunately. 
And before I forget, I wanted to mention that Jeff also has another amazing, amazing initiative um, that he just launched. It's at journacy.com. That's J-O-U-R-N-A-C-Y.com. And Journacy is a company committed to meeting fathers on their unique journey to providing legacy for their kids. So what he's creating is a safe space with fathers in mind where they can share what they know and learn what they don't know. And they just launched this really dope bag (laughs) that you guys should check out. If you have not gotten your Father's Day gifts together, this looks amazing. Go to journacy.com, J-O-U-R-N-A-C-Y.com. As usual, we will be discussing this episode in our brand new Facebook community. So look for us on Facebook, Redefining Wealth Community with Patrice Washington. And you can find me in social media, Seek Wisdom PCW. Seek Wisdom PCW. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Make sure you share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. And as always, I want you to go live your life's purpose, find fulfillment, and earn more without ever chasing money. Talk to you later. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.